This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Tuesday, September 16th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A confluence of beaver-related stories in the news. They just all hit over the weekend. Two today, one in the Guardian in the UK headline, Farmers in England to be allowed to use lethal force on beavers. Government guidance on rodents angers conservationists who say animals are a help, not a hindrance to agriculture. Of those conservationists, one is James Wallace, former CEO of the Beaver Trust. Well, (laughs) you do so on your own time, Jimmy. He says, quote, killing beavers should be the last thing on our minds as we encourage people to welcome them back. But if it is necessary, then it should be done by a licensed professional. And only after evidence demonstrates the need. Great. That's an excellent regime of a state-sanctioned beaver killing force. But the main point of The Guardian was to sing the praises of the beaver, how good they are for the environment, how much the wetlands helps in terms of keeping the lands wet, which I guess is better than dry. Although if there was too much wetness, I'm sure we'd like a little bit of dryness. Anyway, San Francisco Chronicle today, why this underappreciated rodent is one of California's best chances to fight climate change. I gotta say, if it all comes down to the beaver, California is screwed. That being said, I had always assumed all along that California was screwed. So this one of the California's best chances, what are the funding levels for the best chance? The beaver believer community has been advocating for beaver restoration and they managed to secure 1.67 million this fiscal year. Great, best chance. Chronicle goes on to say, beavers live in dams they construct from tree branches and mud surrounded by water, which creates a hard barrier that's difficult for predators to penetrate. They have underwater entrances to these lodges, which are usually homed to monogamous adult beavers and their offspring. Now, the Chronicle clearly isn't endorsing the heteronormativity of these wetland mammals, but they cannot ignore what they refer to as the beaver believer communities, quote, taking a more holistic and proactive approach toward supporting beavers. This includes prioritizing beaver restoration projects, fostering better partnerships with local communities of beavers, no, I think people, including indigenous tribes and landowners, and adopting and utilizing the best policies for better beaver management. I sense a whiff of runaway pro-beaver propaganda. Uh, Just look at the New York Times today, which has a headline, a Nevada rancher makes a truce with beavers and it paid off. Oh, maybe it was outreach to and fostering better partnership with the beaver community. Sign a peace treaty with the beavers. I guess he signs his name with teeth. They call beavers, the New York Times does, a furry weapon of climate resilience. It says, the New York Times does, it may seem trite to say that beavers are a key part of a national climate action plan, but the reality is they are a force of 15 to 40 million highly skilled environmental engineers. And you know that if Trump were president, he'd be claiming all of them on the latest jobs report. Now, this is the New York Times, which not 10 months ago had this headline, In Canada, beaver dams mean no love lost for Canada's emblematic animal. Yes, Canada, whose national symbol is the beaver, hates the beaver because they're, quote, blamed for flooded fields, damaged roles, and the occasional death. This 10-month-old article in the Times 
cites a beaver chomping through a fiber optic cable, which cut off internet service to a town in British Columbia, and the time a subway station in Toronto was shut down after a lost beaver was wandering about. And then there is the floods. Oh, all the floods. When a beaver pond is overwhelmed by rain and the flooding occurs, you know, it's really just one damn thing after another. But back to the current Times article, it does have one of those to-be-sure graphs. To be sure, they fell power lines, they fell beloved trees, they flood places you don't want flooded. But, 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 they are nature's engineers. And beaver engineers are very industrious. I mean, actual workers in the real world, they're doing all the quiet quitting, not beavers. They're busy as, you know, themselves. You never hear about a beaver underachiever. And when human-beaver conflicts arise, the Times says, they can be addressed without killing the animals. Paint and fencing can protect trees from gnawing. The beaver's handiwork, I'd call it toothy work, can be silently undone with pipes that drain water from beaver settlements. The system is known as the beaver deceiver. Yes, not since confound a hound and mislead a steed has the field of animal deception been so mutually beneficial. Now, the U.S. government does kill it says tens of thousands of beavers a year, which if they were actual engineers would, I would say, be a bit of an overreaction to the question of eliminating student loan debt. And it is also true that you can't, in most states, you can't relocate a beaver under the common law decree of leave it to beaver. But no, seriously, you can't. So here in the U.S., beavers cannot be banished, but can be executed to the tune of tens of thousands of years. This may not go on forever, just given the positive benefits of biodiversity and wetlands, but really because of this glorious PR push they managed to enjoy this weekend. This is all true, and I'm all pro-beaver up until one gets loose in the subways, and I go from cheering on a climate change resilient rodent to looking at one as just the latest bucktooth rat that delayed the F train. On the show today, the potable possibilities of Jackson, Mississippi. But first, A.M. Holmes is a novelist known for her willingness to engage with the macabre, the off-putting. If you have that achy tooth, she is the one who keeps tonguing it and tonguing it and tonguing it. You can't stop. And A.M. Holmes brings her methods to the most macabre subject of all these days, U.S. politics. Her new book is called The Unfolding, and A.M. Holmes is here with me next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A.M. Holmes writes about the things you think about but don't want to think about, and you ask yourself, why am I thinking about this? Why am I compelled to go there? Because as a great novelist and writer of short fiction, she makes you go there and thinks the thoughts that you didn't know you wanted to be thought. Her new novel is called The Unfolding. It's about American politics. It is set in 2008, and after Barack Obama beat John McCain, certain stirrings were felt in the breasts of power men, specifically a character called the big guy. Hello, AM. I shall call you AM because your friends call you AM. Uh, hello. <laughs> and thank you. So it is, uh, I've, I've read of quite a few political novels and some go pretty far back into the past to try to get a grasp of the present. I talked to Jake Tapper and he started writing books about the 1950s sort of mm -hmm. to escape the present moment, but also because he certainly found resonances there. I wouldn't have thought of going back to 2008, except maybe I was reading it. Maybe she's pinpointing this as some sort of starting point. But why do you decide to start? to set the book in 2008? Sure. I would say that I think Jake Tapper is right in the sense that I would definitely go back to sort of the end of World War II for really where the seeds are. And, it and you know, through Eisenhower's sort of proclamation about the rise of the military-industrial complex, for me with this book, I think that the election of Barack Obama activated a very profound current of racism in this country. And I think we are still playing that out to this day. Activated. Now that's a, an active verb. And that's what's going on in a lot of the book. You see that the people that your main character, the big guy assembles around himself are not just, they're political activists. They're certainly Republicans. They're, you know, white industrialists, masters, captains of industry types, but they have been activated by the loss of McCain and the rise of Obama. And what form that activation takes is much of the propulsive force of the book. Yeah, I mean, I think that they are really sort of tripped into a kind of panic. And it's interesting because in a way, the book doesn't overtly talk about racism it and it doesn't. doesn't right it's not it's really barely it's a mentioned sentence there and, yes. and it's like one character recognizes it in another and the other character cops to it but they move on as if that's not the real animating yeah. force yeah and it's that's in there and also it, you know a profound sort of sense of sexism and the big guy sort of begins to wake up to that and begins to wake up to the way in which he's really made the development of the women in his life very difficult um and he sort of you know admits so at some point to being having you know re recognizing himself as an asshole but what does that mean to him um but those threads i wanted to really write about these guys who are 
in my mind, a little bit the last of a kind of a generation. And they are, you know, men who either were born right sort of at the end of World War II or whose fathers were part of that and grew up, I think, with a certain sense of what their view of America was, of duty, of what it meant to be part of the government. And that sense also talks about Eisenhower 10, which were these 10 men that were, you know, in case of nuclear attack, dubbed to basically run things. And they were, you know, the head of CBS and they weren't bureaucrats. Right. So. Were they were they old boomers or did they miss that generation? The guys of this age, they didn't. The key, a key is their fathers and grandfathers did serve in the military yeah. and they went to all the right schools, but never actually were public servants. Exactly. And I think that that is that is to me also a piece about the tail end of that group, that their fathers did all of those things. And for the most part, they might have dabbled a little bit, but they didn't really do that. So in a way, too, they're also quite insecure about is their power really their power? Is it the power of previous generations? And they're desperate not to lose it. And they speak in such platitudes about what America meant. I mean, at some points, they, the big guy and the uh, and the and his friends or associates who he assembles, all powerful people with different skills. You know, at some points, they do acknowledge their whiteness and they do joke about this being the last stand of the white man, and that's not such a bad thing. But mostly, the thing that they want to hold on to is never quite articulated. It's just different from what's going on now. Yeah, I mean, they they want to hold on to power. And I think, you know, when I look at sort of the evolution of our political system, I started making the notes for this way back and actually sort of was trying out some of the ideas on a short story called A Prize for Every Player, where there's a man who's nominated to run for president while shopping in a big box store. And I, f I felt strongly that there was a disconnect between the American people and the American political process that's just gotten more and more exacerbated. And now I'm even sort of concerned. I think it's gone completely mental mm -hmm. because now we also have – forget what we used to think of as disinformation. We have this crazy world of just not even faux facts anymore, but right. just like – banana pants things that people just make up and throw out there and everyone goes, yeah, that's true. And so that for novelists, I would say it's funny, it's totally scary because I'm very obsessed by fact and truth and history and how one sort of evaluates that and recognizes histories that have not been represented. But the the banana pants history, I'm not sure where to put it yet. Yeah. I think it's Bo is the character who kind of invents, this is his job to invent these either banana pants or, you know, he talks about misinformation, talks about malinformation. These are real terms, by the way. Yeah. I once visited with uh, an army base in North Carolina and they do have the psyops force and there are black psyops and gray psyops. But, you know, the characters in your book know it well and know how to generate it and kind of instruct each other about how it actually works. Yeah, that fascinates me. And and also the sort of the the intersection of, for lack of a better word, intelligence with advertising and mm -hmm. with with how we are sold things and, you know, what we talk about now is the algorithm. So that that we are getting to a point where, you know, and there's been this whole debate recently, are we even living in a simulation? So there's all this I mean there is there is full craziness out there to be had. Um, and yet I wanted to look at these men in a way that's it's funny to say I keep describing the book as like if Joan Didion and John Waters had a baby it would be mm -hmm. this book because there there are parts <laughs> of it it is 
hopefully darkly funny and humorous, and there are parts that are, are quite sort of pushed out into the surreal. But I was also coming up against, I was writing it, that the world we were living in was spinning out to a another version. And some people have been asking me lately, like, well, is this part real? I'm like, oh, no, that's a fact. You know, there really is this place, Mount Weather. There really are these plans. There really, you know, Eisenhower did appoint these people. And they're like, really? You know, all that yeah. stuff. Um so it, it's for me, it's been fun. And I have to say, you know, I look at people like Don DeLillo and Philip Roth and their sort of speculative histories of various kind of American moments. And, and in a way, that's also what I'm playing with. Right. So as facts presented themselves in the real world, something that Steve Bannon, who would be part of this group, right, if he's he's very typical of the people we're talking about in this group plotting something. And I'll get to that in a second. But as weird facts came out. Did any so overlap with some of your plot points that you said either maybe you got affirmation, I'm onto something, or you said, well, that'll seem like it's too on the nose? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I would say I had originally hoped that this book would be out before the election. And then in a way, after January 6th happened, I thought, well, wow, I dodged one because that's really what these guys are kind of, you know, edging their way towards. And also the idea that one can plant these seeds but not be traceable. So it, it it's not easy to sort of back up and say who planted this idea or who, who told people to behave in that way. So I don't think there was one particular event that happened, but certainly sort of the rise of dark money, the rise of these kind of campaigns of information and sort of stirring the pot among people who, I would say for many years, hadn't in any way been politically involved. And so now it's like, you know, it's almost like the militia has been called to to serve and everyone, you know, is coming out of their gaming stations in their basements, right. fully armed and, and on the, you know, on, on the charge. Well, when it comes out, for instance, that Robert Mercer, who's a huge mm-hmm. Republican funder, also has this interest in funding this weird scientist in Oregon who's been collecting his urine in jars for the last 20 years. That's the sort of thing that if you put in the novel, it would make the novel seem a little less realistic. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's and I'm laughing because I always think like, you know, on the one hand, I I, like as someone who does make up all kinds of things, I would say you can't make it up, but but you also can. And then I look at it this way. I always think like I'm somebody who's always reading the culture. And so, you know, years ago, I wrote a novel called Music for Torching the Dead in a School Shooting. It came out like three weeks before Columbine. I know, I know. So I think it is about sort of looking at what's happening and trying to kind of track those moments. And, you know, I think the reason, too, that I like writing fiction as opposed to nonfiction is there is a kind of psychological truth and a kind of a current that runs through things that is much more... Um, sort of, I don't want to say ethereal or whatever, but it's it's not f- overtly fact based, but it is tapping into that to render a moment in time and place. Mm-hmm. And if your books are responded to and they resonate, that gives you confirmation that this psychological truth or this you know zeitgeisty feeling is accurate. Yeah, and they have been. <laughs> I know that's really a problem. Yeah. I would say in some ways because I would say you know I wrote. I mean, it goes all the way back to I wrote a play when I was nineteen and. It, it had J.D. Salinger in it and all these radio stations. And it was about somebody doing a call-in show because that was a big thing, you know, right. in the 80s and so on. And weirdly, I got all, you know, I looked up in Variety, the names of the radio stations. And then I wrote something about a person committing suicide at a radio station in Baltimore. And then it happened. And I was like, oh, my God. And that's, I was a kid. Right. But always my work has been 
clocking the culture in those ways. Um, when you're writing a novel like this, where one aspect is you have a group of uh, half a dozen guys who are all smart and they're all barraging each other with facts and then even the father-daughter relationship, they go back and forth with facts. Just from talking to you for the last few minutes, I could tell you're very, uh, you're very interested in facts, but uh, is your antenna up more during the uh, writing of a novel like this, or are you just more incorporating that which would normally flit across your consciousness, and thankfully you have a place to put it? Well, I will say that the that the facts related to this novel had been accumulating themselves for a very long time, and I had enormous pleasure in actually applying them to characters and to sort of, in a way, doing research that backed up a lot about what my experience was like as a kid growing up. So I grew up on the edge of Washington, D.C., and I would remember things like, you know, I would say, Mom, was there a warplane parked in the woods? And she would be like, yes, there was. You know, And then I re- the, the other day I was like, did Hubert Humphrey really live around the corner? And a bunch of kids wrote back, yes, he did. He used to drive past our patrol booth on the way to school. Um, so because when Humphrey was elected vice president, what well, was became vice president, there wasn't a, a vice presidential home. We hadn't bought the observatory yet. So we, the American people. Well, maybe you, your um, family, I, who knows? No, my family. They were, owned it years Not at ago. all. My family were totally, and this is the other funny thing. My family were like lefty, socialist, practically communists who somehow decided to build a glass house in Chevy Chase, Maryland, uh-huh. which is not the place for like socialist communists. So everyone around us, like the guy who owns the Nationals lives around the corner and still lives there. <laughs> Everybody was like a real estate developer developer became a billionaire. My parents would be like, we don't believe in vacation. We can't have electric curlers because things are bad in the world right now. But we will have hippies staying on the floor for the march on Thursday. So it was the strangest growing up ever for me. And our bikes would get stolen and we'd be like, uh, call the police and be like, you know, my bike got stolen. I can see it. And they're like, yeah, we can't go in that driveway. They have diplomatic immunity. Oh, really? The diplomats totally. kids get yes. to steal your bikes? Totally. Could you name the country? Oh, no, 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 <laughs> she no. She like panic-stricken, no. <laughs> They're still um, out there. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you about this because I was thinking about your books and perversity. I don't know how much, perver- a bit of perversity is in this book. So what we call perversity are different things, but there is a philosopher named David Sussman who wrote an article called For Badness Sake, and he defined perverse actions as those undertaken when our normal desire for good is reversed, the appeal of truly awful movies or of corpses or of grisly accidents or of sniffing spoiled food, even though or perhaps because we know it to be disgusting. And I started thinking about you and the people you write about. And he said, you know, it's hard to see those beautiful icicles without wanting to smash them. And he says, most of us know what it's like to pick at a scab or worry a loose or worry a loose tooth simply because of the peculiar way in which doing so hurts. Do you think that describes? That is me. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'm definitely a loose tooth scab picker. Um, I think I feel the need to. And this is terrible. This is not a good quality. But in a way, sometimes to pop the bubble. Mm -hmm. And I'm always trying to say, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. There's stuff happening. And probably, I would say in my family, literally, I looked outside one day and I said, the backyard is on fire. And my mother said, no, it's not. And I was like, okay, problem. So I think I am constantly saying the backyard is on fire and trying to make sure that people can see that. 
So the last thing I want to ask you about is the plot, meaning the plot of when you reveal the plot. Normally, in a book about plots, it could go a few ways. Yeah. But pretty much an, there is intimations there might be a plot, and then you get to know the characters, and perhaps the act one reveal is what the plot is, and then the rest of the book is spent with the hero uh, e- either the plotter is achieving their plot or the hero trying to thwart it. Your book is about a plot. And literally, I don't want to give away when we know w- what the plot is. It's pretty late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so why, why that choice? That's a good question. Um, let's see. This is going to sound – I don't think about plot, uh-huh. which is funny because the whole book is about, obviously, these guys plotting something. Um I really think a lot about character. I really think a lot about the way in which these guys egg each other on. Um, there's a part sort of moderately early on where the guy is having Thanksgiving by himself, the big guy. And in his basement, he has different he, – he plays with soldiers and things. And he has different battles, one on the pool table, one on the ping pong table and so right. on. And then later in the book, there's a, a crazy event where they're having, you know – essentially war games with private military contractors at his house in Wyoming. And questions about what what are we playing when we're playing war? What are we playing when we push these boats out? And do we know the difference? And mm. that's also really a big piece of it. But there's a lot of, uh, in a funny way, a lot of the plot of this or the threads of it are also unnamed, which is kind of wild. The, the racism, the sexism, the questions about war and it sort of extremes of violence um, are right underneath the surface. Yeah. Which I feel is where we are right now, too. It's all right there. And it, it, it bubbles up and we have these moments. And then very quickly, there seems to be an effort to kind of tamp it back down again. Mm-hmm. Like people, people. Right. You know. Which fits in with your view of people not admitting that the backyard's on fire. Exactly. A.M. Holmes is the author. The name of the new novel is The Unfolding. Great talking to you. Hey, thank you so incredibly much. And now the spiel. Don't open your mouths in the shower. That advice for Jackson, Mississippi residents still holds, as does the boil water notice from July. But water pressure is finally being restored as the capital city of a U.S. state gets a basic life necessity back after a week going without. Water problems in the U.S., particularly poor, under-resourced urban parts of the U.S., aren't new. They're not new in Jackson. In 2001, this was resident Kehinde Gaynor voicing a familiar refrain. We're in the richest country in the world. We shouldn't have to be living in, a, uh, in these kind of conditions. Well, what about that? The contrast between the deprivation of Jackson with the abundance of its surrounding country. It is true that the water system shouldn't have failed, that the word shame does attach itself to the fact that it did. But as far as Jackson being in the richest country, it's not the wealth of this country that is most directly implicated. Our municipalities fund their water and sewage systems with a water fund or a sewage fund. They also have capital improvement funds and general funds. But when a city is very, very poor, 
the tax base is low and those funds are strained. So sometimes a state might step in. And if that doesn't work, the federal government may have to step in. Something like that happened or almost completely happened, but then didn't quite happen with Jackson. There was money under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act to address the needs like water systems in underserved communities. Jackson was one. The EPA has available to its state revolving funds, but the states do have to allocate the money that they're given. So as much as this is a problem of money and more money would have solved the problem, and we are the country with the most money, it's not actually very useful to see it as an issue of stinginess or even cruelty. The better explanation is carelessness, maybe motivated carelessness, and yeah, okay, maybe a cruel carelessness, but it's basically misdefining what a government's job is, by whom and for whom. It shouldn't be seen as by the rich, for the less rich. It should just be seen as e pluribus unum. The fact of Americans holding a lot of wealth or America and some government agencies having access to great wealth doesn't get you very far when it comes to the question of who bears responsibility for delivering basic services. A recent book by Jared Rubin and Mark Koyama, How the Rich Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth, explains that America has been the richest country in the world for over a century. But that doesn't mean that all of America is equally rich or has access to that wealth. The $100 million homes of the Hamptons or Atherton, California, don't interact much with the water fountain at the Jackson Community Center. In 1900, when America was the richest country in the world already, railroad barons lived sumptuously and Appalachia starved. 60 years later, Bobby Kennedy did a tour of that very region and saw not much had changed. America's richness doesn't translate to Americans' richness. And the good news is, I don't think we need a socialist-inspired massive redistribution of wealth to get to a place of more fairness. I think we'd need to redistribute responsibility from the notion of from my people to my people to a more pluralistic notion. The problem here is not just a question of cruelty to poor communities. There is some of that going on, maybe a lot of that. Usually, infrastructure is seen as the ultimate shared sacrifice or shared responsibility. You might think that state legislators wouldn't want to fear splashing water in their faces after an all-night voting session in the state capitol. That might be a motivator for shared sacrifice. The governor, cited as an example of the indifference to the suffering of the Jackson citizenry, is himself a citizen of Jackson. The governor's mansion is located on 300 East Capitol Street, downtown Jackson, Mississippi. Had any of those lawmakers, mostly white, living and working in a city that's over 80% African-American, really thought the water would flat out fail, they'd have done something about it. They'd have retroactively appropriated the funds. They don't need the headache and the extra funding and the problem that they're in now. But Mississippi is a place of poor governance, indifferent to long-term planning. And when that planning is seen to benefit black people, the laxity is even more profound. You will also find, as part of this waterless city, or nearly waterless for a weak city, within the world's richest country argument, a coterminous argument pointing the finger at America's overseas priority. So one argument is we're so rich we can't even help 
a city of our own. Another is we're helping other countries before we help a city of our own. I'll quote from the Arkansas Worker. It's, a, I think, a Marxist publication. Here is a tweet liked by 85,000 people. USA to Ukraine, here's $8 billion. USA to Israel, here's $3.3 trillion. USA to Taiwan, here's a trillion dollars. USA to Mississippi, don't drink the water. Wayne Dupree, Todd Starnes, right-wing bloggers and talk show hosts saying pretty much the exact same thing, that we care about Ukraine, not America. They blame Joe Biden for funding Ukraine and failing America. But it's not about the allocation of resources. It's about competence and seriousness. Russia rolling over Ukraine unresisted would have done nothing to improve the potability of the Jackson water supply. In fact, up top, you heard a quote from 2021. Jackson had a bad water system then. It, ha- it has had a bad water system for decades. It had a bad water system when Putin was seen to be bluffing back in January, when P- Putin took over the Donbas region in 2014, when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton attempted a reset in U.S.-Russian relations. No one back then, when we weren't spending so much money in Ukraine, did anything about Jackson's water system. Also rebutting the idea of allocation of resources is the fact that Mississippi as a state gets a lot more benefit from the federal government than it gives to the federal government. Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel give nothing to the federal government of the United States, of course, not concretely, Mississippi taxpayers do. But according to smartasset.com, which does a survey every year, for every dollar paid in income taxes in Mississippi, the state takes in $2.53 in federal funding. It's the second largest ratio of federal funding to income taxes. Also, something like 47% of Mississippi's state revenue comes from federal funding, which is to say that the richest country in the world regards this particular administrative district as worthy or a proportionally worthy beneficiary of wealth. Yeah, Mississippi does need more help from the federal government than other states do. But you can't say this is purely an issue of underfunding. It's under-prioritizing, and it's misunderstanding what management and governance means. Here's one more way to look at the, I can't believe this is happening in the richest country in the world argument. Would you say of Mexicans, oh, these are residents of the richest continent in the world? I mean, it is true. Canada, the U.S., Mexico's GDP divided by total population, it is ever so slightly higher than Europe. But so what? And how does that help Mexicans? And does it make Mexicans any less vulnerable to the terrible narco-terrorism and poverty and in some cases starvation that besets Mexico? It doesn't because Canada and the United States don't perceive that they have much of a shared commitment when it comes to Mexicans. It's exactly my point. Something similar is going on when it comes to the residents of Jackson, Mississippi. It's not about the amount of money. It's how we conceive of what government owes to all its citizens. What are the positives and negatives of funding something in the short term so it doesn't blow up in the long term? The richest country in the world argument does very little for me. The less rich countries of the world Austria, Australia, Cyprus, all have better water, and you don't have large municipalities there with failed water systems. They just conceive of their responsibilities differently. And of course, you have to properly fund and maintain these systems because these systems aren't a gift or a benefit or something someone else gets to have. They're just part of the definition of a functioning society. We do have a richer society, but it's also more sprawling and heterogeneous and diffuse. It's also more of a federalist system, and not everyone has the idea of a shared ethos here in America. A state government here 
can look at the failures of its capital city to provide water for its citizens and somehow tell itself that the fault lies elsewhere. It doesn't. It's right there. The irresponsibility flowing out of the state house is as remarkable as the water that's failing to flow in. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is not just COO of Peachfish Productions, but is also ex officio member of Confuse a Cat Limited, incorporating Puzzle a Puma and Bewilder a Beast. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>